Andrew Franklin is the founder and publisher of Profile Books, which he launched on April Fool's Day, 1996. The house's list of bestsellers include Alan Bennett, Mary Beard, Simon Garfield's Just My Type, and Lynn Truss's Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, which sold more than three million copies worldwide. What does that translate into money for you? Uh, That's a complicated question, and we sold the rights in the United States, so we took a percentage of the revenue, the royalty revenue from the United States, but it's not the same as publishing. We sold about 1.4 million copies, so it was a lot, and we were very small then. There were maybe eight or ten of us, and now there are 65 people. A lot, a lot. Since you're you're Canadian, um, I also want to shout out Margaret McMillan, who's one of the finest historians in the world, and led the Canadian, whatever it was, group or delegation at King Charles's coronation. Um, and she's, we've done a number of books for her, and mm-hmm. we have another book under contract. She's at, she's at the University of Toronto at the moment. Yes, and Oxford. And Oxford, yeah, but she's, I mean, sorry, right now she's in Toronto. She spends, she now, Good now that she's not warden of St. Anthony's College anymore, she spends half her time in Toronto. Okay, and you can listen to my conversations with her about Stephen Leacock. Oh, and that's also right, because she did. What is history? Yeah, that which we published. We didn't do the Stephen Leacock. That was published by Penguin Canada. Yeah, she's terrific. So I can't easily tell you what the sums are. I mean, I, I, I can't because I can't what the price is. Roughly, what do you make off it? Well, I think maybe maybe the book was fifteen pounds, but I can't remember. But it was fifteen pounds, then. 1.4 million would make about that would be about one and a half uh, be about two million pounds or 2.2 million pounds at retail of which we would keep about 50 or a bit less than that so it'd be about 1.1 million pounds is that right no it's sorry it's about 10 times that we would have made about 10 million pounds yes about okay. ten million pounds, that huh? but I, that's just a number off the top of my. Okay. You know, trying to do the calculation yes. okay. in my head, and it was a, a while ago, and you, yes. you know, the discounts and all the rest of it. Okay, but yes, it was very, very important in our history. Long time ago now. Yeah, in two thousand and seven, Profile uh, acquired Serpent's Tail, whose successes include "We Need We Need, we need to, to Talk About to Kevin" talk by about Lionel Kevin. Shriver. Yeah, that sold about a million. A million copies, and in 2014, we are all completely beside ourselves. That's also sold about a million. Yeah, Town Joy Fowler, and then the Essex Serpents by Essex and by Sarah Perry. That sold about a million copies. Okay. So, yeah, Souvenir was interesting because it was another in. Sorry, Serpent's Tale was interesting. It was another independent publisher. It was quite a lot smaller than us by then. Right. Run by its founder, a man called Pete Ayrton, and he'd had enough, but he wanted to sell it out to an independent, so we bought it, and I hope we've continued the sort of outsider and fiercely independent spirit of publishing that he did so successfully for so long before we took it over. And then in 2017, mm-hmm. 2018, we bought another independent publisher, Souvenir Press, which had been founded by Ernest Hecht, who ran it for 67 years, which must be, must be a record. He was one of that extraordinary generation that was so influential. They were quite influential in North America, but they were especially influential in British publish, publishing yeah. of uh, European 
Jewish refugees, mm-hmm. uh, people like Andre Deutsch and George Weidenfeld, Ernest Text himself, uh, there were many of them. Weidenfeld's biography just came out. It did, by yeah. Tom Harding, that's right, just yeah. out now, it's given very good reviews. Before Profile, Andrew was a director of Penguin Books and ran Hamish Hamilton. He began his book uh, trade career as an uh, assistant bookseller at Hatchards. That's correct, working in the basement. And they, there was, has always been quite a snobby bookshop. Hatchards. Yes. A great bookshop, mm. but they, would, they confined paperbacks to the basement, and I was in the basement selling the paperbacks. It was a very, very good experience. Everybody in the book trade should work in a bookshop at some point because mm-hmm. that is the sort of raw edge where you see how and why people choose the books they do and what they want and why they want it. And of course it's different with Amazon but it is really a good and valuable experience. I commend it to everybody. I recently interviewed uh, Tim Waterstone and uh, he says that a big part of the success of his business is due to the fact that he, right off the bat, hired about four or five people from Hatchards. Interesting. He, he, he had, one of his great strengths was he hired very talented people, many of whom then went on to have big jobs in publishing. Graduates. It must be the same in graduates, yeah, it must be the same in Canada and the US. Publishing pays, it's not great salaries, yeah. but it pays much better than book selling. So, very talented people who are drawn into book selling often, unfortunately for book selling, leave for better paid jobs in publishing. Okay, we're not on video, but I am wearing a t-shirt that has a huge microphone. I think it's a Newman's microphone on it. I was just at this t-shirt shop. Fascinating guy. It's called We Admire, near the Barbican. And uh, he started talking about admiration and I couldn't help but make the comparison to publishing. He, he gives his designers a brief and he wants to know what they admire. That's part of the brief. So just, just to start with, is it about admiration? Publishing? Is it like you, you publish what you admire? Is it that simple? Well, let me start by saying it's a very splendid um, t-shirt. It's always nice to see new... My belly's pretty good in it, too. Eh? It is also good, but it's great to see clean, new white T-shirts because so many people wear slightly stained, grubby, grey T-shirts. So well, it's because I it's bought it about half an hour ago. Don't spill anything down it. It looks really good. <laughs> is publishing about admiration? Um, yes, it is in part. If you don't like a book or you don't believe in it, then it's really quite hard to... It's quite hard to work with the author. It's quite hard to mm. have the conviction and the effort that is needed because there is conviction effort needed to launch and sell every book. So, yes, I think admiration is definitely one word. I mean, there are others. You've got to like... Yeah, I mean, you have to, like, I was going to say, like and admire the book. You have to have some sense of how you think it could succeed. Yeah. And success doesn't just mean being on the bestseller list. Obviously, it doesn't because in each category, there are only 10 books or 15 books on the bestseller list and 100,000 books are published a year but you have so you've got to have some idea of what would be success make it successful and admiring it is a very good start so if you yeah. don't if you don't admire it why why would you bother yeah well and you want if you admire something you think obviously you think it has value and that other people should perhaps admire it as well well that's the hope I mean in publishing there's no the big corporations are really interested in the idea that big data can give them answers to questions but actually in the end it's the same as in the film industry 
And, and in some ways, I think it's the same as the horse racing industry. It is a matter of judgment. Is this, ho- is this horse that I'm going to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds buying and looking after and paying its vet's bills? Is this horse going to win the race? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same in the film industry. It's much easier than the film industry because in the film industry, the sums of money are enormous. Right. And you're so not betting as much. You're not betting as much. And so, you know, that's why the, the studio system in Hollywood has such an incredibly unhealthy hold over everything and it's much harder for independent studios to get distribution whereas in books it's really quite easy for independent publishers to, to battle alongside and compete directly mm. with the big publishers yeah um so some notion of success is important and yes i agree some notion of admiration is really important because otherwise as i say why bother we're not right. just selling widgets and we're making difficult judgment calls all the time about whether we should publish this book or that book and how we should publish it. Okay. So if you don't admire it, it's, it would be weird. Yeah, that's why I, like, I, I think about why I interview people, is because I admire them. I admire, the first thing I admire... You admire them until you interview I, them. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it's not... On the co- sorry. It's, I was going to say, it's not, I mean, T-shirts are a particular thing, but it's not so different from the fashion industry because consumer taste changes a bit, but there is also the eternal... There it is, you know, really good history book, you know, such as Margaret Macmillan writes. It doesn't go out of fashion or great literary fiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The equivalent of the little black dress, you know, which will always be in fashion, one yeah. shape or another. And then other things come and go. But it's luckily tastes endure more than in fashion. You know, it's not that green is in this season and then you're left with thousands of unsold green T-shirts the following year and you can do nothing but pulp them. You do nothing but destroy them, don't they? Which is what the fashion industry does with a lot of the fashion industry. Well, first they have I'm going to wear sense. this for the rest of my life, though. This t-shirt. Well, keep it clean. Keep it clean. The problem is it might shrink. That's the other thing. Well, not if it's a good t-shirt. Yeah, he said it wouldn't shrink, but... Uh, but um, That's the hope. I'm just fumbling for his card, because right on his business card, and his name is Theo Steger, and I just met him yesterday... Um, but he made a big impression on me. Right on his business card, and the name of the company again is WeAdmire.net, I think it is. He writes these th- his brief for his designers of his t-shirts slash books. Content before commerce, don't try to pick winners. I don't think it works like that in publishing, and I'll tell you why. The difference is that he pays his designers whatever he pays them for his T-shirt, you know, £200, £500, whatever yeah. it is, and then he prints the T-shirts. In book publishing, a very large number of agents who are very literary agents who are a very important part of the book trade ecology, auction books. So you have to decide how far you want to go in the auction. Am I going to go to £5,000? Am I going to go to £10,000? Am I going to get £500,000? So you have to put a value on the book. So you have to have some view, if you participate in auctions, of what the book is going to be worth, what it is going to sell, and therefore what you can afford to pay the author. So you do, in some ways, have to... Yeah, but he just says content before. He's not saying no commerce. He's saying content before commerce. Well, that's the pure idea of publishing, and it is much better when it's done like that, and it's easier... I was going to say it's easier for independent publishers, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it's easier to do that when your business is successful. If you know you've got money coming in, you can pay your staff and you can pay your rent. Then you can take more interesting risks and publish the books that you admire in. But if your business is going badly... And you you publish, you sell your soul? Um, 
Well, I'm hoping that we don't sell our soul because our business has always been successful. But I think people do sell their souls. You know, rom-com, uh, sorry, ro- you know, romance fiction, a huge amount of fiction is published quite cynically, or horoscopes are published quite cynically because people think they're going to make money. They don't publish them because they admire them. No, There's no. an awful lot of crap published. But so you're, you do agree with content before commerce then? Yes, like, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Topic before aesthetic. Substance delivers style. Well, now, wait a minute. Topic, what was it? What was the first thing? Topic before aesthetic. Substance delivers style. Well, I, I, mean, I think you have to differentiate between fiction and non-fiction, don't you? Mm-hmm. Because style is... No, I don't know about that. I mean, if, if I want a meaty topic, something that's inequality in the world, for example... Right. Or socialism, okay, yes, or absolutely. this kind of so thing. So that's non-fiction, but if you want to read... No, even fiction. If it, if it deals with that, that's going to be well, interesting take, take, to take, me too. Take the case of the late, great Hilary Mantel, who wrote three transformative novels about Thomas Cromwell. Now, there have been endless, I mean, really endless historical novels about Henry VIII and his wives and the Tudors and, I mean, really a lot. What was distinctive about Hilary Mantel? It was the style... I mean, focusing on Thomas Cromwell was different, but but she's an extraordinarily elegant stylist. And I think the reason that (coughs) Zadie Smith's White Teeth was such an important novel was partly the substance that she was looking at things that people hadn't looked before of how what breaks down categories and crossovers of sexuality and race and gender, families, class. But it was also, she had this extraordinarily fresh and distinctive style and that's really what made the book. So I don't think it's true in non-fiction. With fiction, and I think with non-fiction, if it's really a badly written book, on, on most subjects there's more than one book. And if the book's not well written, why am I going to struggle and spend 20 hours reading it when I could read something I would enjoy? You've always got a choice. You know, you cited inequality and socialism and, and there was something else. And you can choose between the two. You go into books and you go, well, I'm quite interested in socialism, I'm quite interested in inequality, I'm quite interested in the future of the Labour Party, I'm quite interested in Trump and the global destruction he's caused. And you'll choose the best of the books which are on those sort of politics field. And I think style does matter a lot. If you're an yeah, academic yeah. press, if you're a university press and you're publishing <clears throat> you know, the latest work done on late medieval coins in Flanders then all that matters is that this book is, is the standout book on that subject and it's got pioneering new work and it can be dismally written because the 200 people in the world who really care about late medieval coins in Flanders will want and need that book. But that's I don't different. know, though. Isn't he making the point that if you, just, if you focus on something that's really significant and has substance, your mind's going to grapple with that and you're going to produce... Uh, you're going to try and write better? Maybe I don't not. know what substance means. Substance. No, I know what no. it means in a book. I don't really know what substance means in terms of a T-shirt image. Don't be putting down that T-shirt. I went, went into the shop. The T-shirts in the window, they were like this Leica, an old Leica. I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is he makes an interesting comment about how admiration and substance creates something worth purchasing. 
I don't, I think you can push the parallel between t shirts <laughs> and literary fiction and serious non fiction okay. only so far, and then unfortunately okay. Okay. you hit a wall. Right, okay. Authenticity, uh, and then he quotes Goethe. He's right not, on his business card. He's just a little bit pretentious. Well, he? just maybe, a little bit. I don't know. I, I, if, I, I was, I if, I was, if I was editing, I'm, I'm sure he's highly likable, but if I was yeah. editing, if I was and editing, I bought the T-shirt too. And you bought the T-shirt, so that's good. But if I was editing it, I'd say, this might just be a little bit pretentious. Let's cut it out. Okay. Let me just quote here. Please. What, what is uttered from the heart alone will win the hearts of others to your own. No, that's absolutely... It has, that has no application in publishing whatsoever. And the reason it doesn't is that publishing is not just one of those th amateur things where you can set up a little corner shop <coughs> like maybe a t-shirt shop, and hope for the best. There's a whole series, and many, many people do try amateur or self-publishing or timely publishing, and it, and it doesn't work, and their authors get very frustrated. And that is because there is a whole series of professional moves which you have to make, which are go on behind the scenes and are a great part of publishing. So you've got to register the book for an ISBN, you've got to sort out the copyright, you have got to copy edit it properly, you've got to proofread it properly, you've got to find a printer who will print it to the stand you want, and then, and this is where people who think it's just about uh, love and admiration, you've then got to market, distribute and sell the book, and that is an awful lot that's really quite technical and boring. You've got to have a warehouse that can raise the right invoice, send it to the right bookshop, when the bookshop wants it, replace the missing stock, uh, replenish the orders and all of those things. and. All of the big publishers and most of the small publishers can do that. But that's not about love and admiration. That is about just hard attention to detail. Okay. Yeah, detail is a big part of publishing. Your father worked for Rutledge? He did, yeah. All his life. Yeah, it was a family business, which he eventually sold. So, yeah, that is correct. You've done your homework. So what influence did he have on you then? Um, my relationship with my father was complicated and when I left university I vowed that I would not go into publishing, I would do anything else and so I went into the civil service. But that didn't stick and so I did go into publishing. But mm. I, I only ever worked for him for about a fortnight when I was about 16 as a sort of errand boy, what we'd now call an assistant. <coughs> and uh, that was hard going. So, Would you learn from him anything? Um, I don't know exactly what I learned from it. It'd be hard to pinpoint precisely. I suppose I learned to take books seriously. That's what I learned. And that's pretty important and, and isn't obvious, I think. Yeah, I don't understand. Well, I mean, that you know, you've, you've got to take them seriously that it is a business, but it's also about admiration and enthusiasm and commitment and wanting to get the right book into the right people's hands. And that's really at the core of what publishing is. And again, it's because you feel that the world would be a better place if you did that? I do think books matter a lot, and I do think the world is a better place if people take serious arguments seriously. If they were influenced more by books and less by TikTok, the world would definitely be a better place. So yes, I do think books matter. Almost all education takes place through the medium of books. You know, lectures are yeah. important and there's yeah. online learning systems and there's all sorts of resources. But without books, it is very hard to see how most people would have the education that they have. So 
And, and a I better educated one. population, what, means that we don't get tyrants in power? That's what we want to believe. Um, it, it, the world cannot be a better place because people are better educated, and it could and is on the whole a better place. People's own life opportunities are much better if they're better educated. It's an incredibly rewarding and fulfilling activity, more than most other things. It fires the imagination in a way that almost nothing else does. You know, you can play endless computer games and you're back where you started, except maybe you've learned how to slay various dragons, but you can mm -hmm. read a book about dragons. Or you've got better hand-eye coordination. You perhaps have better fine motor control, but maybe less, you know, maybe you haven't taken enough exercise. Okay. So there's a price to be paid, whereas if you read a book about slaughtering dragons, your imagination would be stretched, you would be taken to other worlds and your eyes would be open. So I do think reading is an inherently important and worthwhile activity. Makes you a better <coughs> human being? No, no, sadly not. No, no. It's certainly not moral. There's no morals, the moral impact. I think, I think it does have this impact, I, and that is that if you read and you learn and you understand about other people, it is easier to be sympathetic to their plight and to empathise with them. So mm -hmm. I think to that extent it is. Yeah. And the, the more and better informed we are about the world, its past, its present, its geography, climate change, all those things, mm -hmm. the better place we are to make informed judgments. What about helping eliminate corruption? Uh, corruption is a big problem in the world. It's a massive problem, I'm, and we have published some very good books on the subject, but do they make much difference? I think I mean, the really central thing with overcoming corruption is, is the freedom of the press, <clears throat> which of course is massively important publishing as well, and is under very serious threat in the United States. It's under threat from both left and right, but particularly from the right. And there, it's, it's brave investigative journalists who go and turn out and investigate what's happening. So I think the press has a more important role in but does that dealing with inform, corruption. Does that inform your decision to publish a book? Is, is this going to help eliminate corruption? Um, well, 99 out of 100 books, the question wouldn't apply because it's a book about, you know, something else, about the origins of the earth or no, post-war, Second World War settlement from Margaret Macmillan, the Roman Emperor from Mary Beard, you know, whatever it is we're doing. But we did publish a very good book called Butler to the World, which was a bestseller for some time by Oliver Bullough, who's a British investigative journalist, and it was about the way that the London economy has become really scarily dependent on servicing international talents and kleptocrats. So you've got a whole network of pro public schools who will set, you know, take all their children, you've got lawyers and bankers who do nothing but look after their needs. And this is really a corrupt activity. I was in Reading about a month ago at the Waterstones. Oh, yeah. And, a, and a, one of the salespeople came up and we started talking. Best book she's read in the last year, she said. Oh, good. That book. Good. Waterstones are very supportive of Prefarm, which is good. It would be... Given the sort of serious books that we publish, it would be difficult for us if they weren't. But they, they, Waterstones are supportive independent bookshops. Booksellers? Book sorry, booksellers. Yeah, book, book publishers. Sorry, Waterstones, book the booksellers, are in supportive of independent book, book publishers. Yeah. If they're efficient and organised and can you know, do what they ask them to do in terms of distribution and signed books and yeah. marketing. Yes, they are. And they like the book. Andrew Franklin of Profile is the best of the best 
in UK publishing, constantly challenging the industry to move on when it drags its feet. That's what James Daunt, one of the great booksellers of the age, has said. No, the great bookseller of the age. Well, that was very, very nice of him. Okay, so what is, what's he talking about? I think he must have had a drink, don't you? Uh, yeah, but I know, I know you have to... I you can't know. read his mind, I know, but what do you think he's talking about? I, um, I don't know. I mean, we don't... We, don't, we do not try to conform, hate yeah. conformity. Um, Incident, sorry, before I just want to stop you there, that word, that's exactly what Stanley Unwin's parents were, were non-conformists. Were they? Yes, that's apparently one of the biggest influences on him. Well, my family are Jewish, so as, are, as were many of the previous generation of publishing, not, I mean, it's, it's fading away now, but... Um, don't conform it. We do not ever try to conform. I'm, I'm not particularly interested in behaving well. We are interested in doing the right thing. So. And that's the best about publishing, not conforming. No, 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 no. I'm trying to think what James could possibly have meant in saying such a very nice thing. Um, and you're saying it's that you don't conform. Well, firstly, I'm, firstly, I'm denying it. And then secondly, after my denial has been accepted, I'm saying it's perhaps that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So a great publisher puts that No, a great publisher publishes great books. It's really as easy as that. No, I know that, but it's not easy because who says what's a great book and what's not a great book? Well, you know, there is the whole concept of the canon. But choosing the next great book... Yes, I think it takes time for us to know what the great book is, and it isn't immediately uh, obvious that it's this book, not that book. But I think that is how you measure a publisher, and it's not by the margins or the profit or the return on capital. It's by Mm -hmm. the quality of the books. So you've acquired in all sorts of different areas. Can you tell me about the success of Mary Beard? We are about to publish Mary Beard's new book later this month, The Emperor of Rome. And Mary Beard is that very rare thing now. She's a highly affected public intellectual. She has enormous impact on people in many different ways. So she's a television star. She's about to make a new television series on Emperors of Rome. She's a very serious scholar and academic. I'll come back to that in a second. She's very active on Twitter, where she suffered quite astonishing levels of misogyny and abuse and fought back with really incredible courage. She's a trustee of the British Museum. She's just tireless about the things that she cares about. And I think The Emperor of Rome, this book she's about to publish, which is is a major book. If publishers are judged by the quality of their books, I should be very happy to be judged Mm. by the quality of that book, which we commissioned... Uh, it, was, it, was, it wasn't my idea, but it was her editor's idea, her editor who's now sadly dead, and so I've looked after her for the last decade or so. And why is this book so important? Because everyone has always thought and written about good emperors and bad emperors, and they say, oh, Augustus was a good emperor, Caligula was a bad emperor, Nero was a bad emperor, he fiddled while Rome burned. And what she has spent a lifetime thinking about is all these questions, and... What she absolutely convincingly shows in this very well-read, 
well-written book, and I think that is part of it, because she carries the reader with her, mm -hmm. is that we cannot actually know the individual emperors. No biographies and no surviving sources for any of the emperors comes from their own lifetime. It's all written later. And so the only things we know about the emperors are either from their admirers and fans and family, if it was the same dynasty, or from their enemies. So we can't... We, the stories are interesting, but they're really interesting for what they tell us about how emperors were perceived. So instead of asking the usual questions, she asks questions which nobody has ever asked about before, which are really revealing, not just the Roman emperors, but like all the best history, have echoes right up to the present, which is how effective were these tyrants? What was their power base? What was the role of the court? What was the role of women in the court? It's a whole chapter on banqueting and dining because this was part of the ritual of power. Uh, why did some emperors become gods and not others and what did it mean and did they take it seriously? Mm. And so it's about really the central, what, what was the emperor, what did it mean uh, and did it really make any difference to ordinary people's lives? And this is a completely new way of thinking about Roman emperors which nobody has ever done before. So mm. it's, it's, I mean she has the stories, of course she does, but she, it's to ask other questions and mm. so it's, it's both highly enjoyable rivetingly interesting and its own way pretty revolutionary and that's as good as it gets and that's good enough for me and it's going to be it's going to be huge when we publish it in three weeks time as it should be because it forces people to think differently about something about which they already know or they think they already know but they don't so it's a major well plus it's got to be uh, a way of reflecting on our current times too. Absolutely. You know, what what impact to our daily life does a... I mean, it's slightly different in democracy, but not as different as it should be. What what difference do they make to our lives? And her argument is that the edges of the Roman Empire, which had 50 million people in it and a very small number of administrators, they wouldn't have known who the emperor was. They couldn't have named them and actually mm. made almost no difference. It had a huge impact amongst the senatorial class in Rome and if things went badly, it could break down into violence and it often did. I think about half of all the emperors were murdered, mm. between a third and a half. Mm. So it had big anchor back in the, but, but further out it had almost no effect. And so that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of contemporary politics as well. Although she's far too clever to ever draw yeah. crude parallels. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, what is it? You don't want to be too on the nose. Uh, I w watched one of her Rome shows yeah. two or three weeks ago. I was really uh, taken by the fact that all sorts of people from the outlying parts of the could come to Rome and be Romans. So this has this this is you know this is an incredibly important insight which she's shared with the world, which is that after Roman citizenship was established in the third century, any anyone in the Roman yeah. Empire was a citizen of Rome. This melt it was completely multicultural because. Yeah. The Roman Empire stretched deep into North Africa through, when it humbled Carthage, into the Middle East and beyond, uh, right up into, well, to the edge of Scotland and Germany. So it was, it was properly multicultural in really interesting ways. Mm. And all the citizens, of course they weren't, but they were notionally equal. Uh, okay, so what about Eats, Shoots, Leaves? Perhaps you could tell me a bit about... Well, first of all, with Mary Beard, did you find, did you sort of discover her before she was a big deal? 
she was already at Cambridge, although she wasn't a professor then, and, but she was the classics editor for the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement. Yeah. And she wrote a couple of really good pieces in the London Review of Books, and I'm an avid reader of the London Review of Books, and I thought these were so good that it was worth getting in touch with her, and I put her in touch with my colleague, now sadly dead, brilliant, brilliant man, who was himself a classicist by training. What's his name? Peter Carson. He'd been my boss at Penguin, and then after he fired me and he was fired, I brought him to profile. Well, that's just right there. That's like a little Hemingway <laughs> short, uh, two sentences. Great, great man. Anyway, and he no, got but that's, a, that's interesting that... But he was a genius. He was phenomenal. There aren't, there aren't, you hired him back because... That yeah, yeah, there are not very many people who are truly brilliant in publishing. There really aren't, but he was one of them. And what made him brilliant? Well, he was this classicist and he could... So he could read Latin and Greek fluently. He translated from Russian for the New Yorker and he translated Chekhov, a Chekhov volume for Norton. He also spoke fluent French. He could easily read three crime novels in an evening and then he would read the Roman, the Oxford okay. multi-volume history okay. of Rome. He was, he, had, he was just an, an incredibly clever and broadly read man with very far-reaching interests. Anyway, and, you, and you wanted someone like that on board? Those people are very rare. <laughs> I mean, they're just very rare in society at large. Yes, yeah. he was brilliant. He was much older than me and sadly he died of cancer. Anyway, I put him in touch with Mary and they just got on brilliantly and they dreamt up these two books, SPQR, about life in the Roman Republic and then the Roman Emperor. So you and discovered her? No, 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 I don't. I think publishers are far too willing and enthusiastic to take the credit. The credit goes to the authors. You know, right. she was very determined. She really cared about taking classics to the widest possible audience. She was tireless and... Peter came up with some ideas that were really very constructive and helped her to do that. And and so it did I think he, you know, I think we can say we helped her on her career, but yeah. publishers should never lay claim to their authors' books. They really shouldn't. We're behind the scenes. We're the stage hands. Okay. Humble. Well we're not humble, of course we're not. Right. Uh, what have you turned and this comes from a friend who's a Great Canadian publisher, Jack Jack David, ECW Press. What have you turned down that you now regret having turned down? Oh, I turned down far more bestsellers than I published. Far more. I turned down. Oh, I mean, so many books. I turned down Free Economics. We had a very vigorous debate here, and we turned down Matt Haig. Hmm. Um, Lots of things, really a lot of things. You regret that, or you could, if you spent your time <laughs> regretting the successful books that have gone on to become huge bestsellers, you would just be consumed by it. You go nowhere, say no. You just got to just move on. And I, what I console myself by saying, well, I didn't see it. I didn't, you know, I couldn't yeah. say I'd turn it to a yeah. successful book. And if I published it, it wouldn't have had that success. Not necessarily true, but that's how I console myself. But that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you maybe you didn't admire it enough. And so if you, if you didn't admire it enough, you wouldn't, as you say, you wouldn't be motivated to get behind it and make it great. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a very, very strong point. It's also the thing I was saying about the financial judgment and why it's different from T-shirts. Because with Free Economics, I did quite like it. And I, did, oh, and I also turned, I didn't offer enough. Oh. I, I really like Yuval Harari's Sapiens, 
and I offered a lot of money for us, really a lot, but I didn't offer enough. Somebody else offered more money, so I lost okay. the auction. Actually, so in other words, you I lost the free economics it. auction. I wanted yeah. it, but yeah. I wasn't willing to pay enough. Matt Haig here, nobody wanted. So, okay. but we were in commercial terms, we were wrong. But I'm not sure you we were wrong editorially. Ooh. Okay. So, what is acquiring then? Is it instinct? I know it's going to be all three: instinct, experience, statistics. No, it's not statistics. Okay. It's not, and we don't okay. use statistics at all. We do not use data. Okay. I mean, obviously, if we're offered an author who has been published elsewhere before, we will look at the that author's sales track record. And since authors don't move if they're having a good time, the track record will probably be poor, and we will then ask ourselves how we could, how and if we could make it better. But otherwise, it is about instinct and judgment and I think it's two other things which are very important it's the commercial thing can I afford to pay the sum that is being asked by the literary agent do I wish to go further than anybody else to risk. win the auction with the risk because yeah. that's what we're winning an auction means that you are willing to go further than somebody else yeah do I want to do that and then yeah. the other thing which is a matter of judgment is how will I publish this book you must have a sense of how would you position it so it, am I going to publish this as a as a historical novel, or am I going to publish it as a novel of character? If it's a work of non-fiction, <clears throat> say in history, edge, edge of history and politics, am I going to categorise it as history or politics? What am I going to put on the jackets? Am I going to change the title? Will I publish it in hardback, or in trade paperback, or in paperback? How international will I try and make the focus of the book? So how, what am I going to do as publisher to position it? And although I think publishers can be in absurdly arrogant about their success in making books, mm. you can see the success where the same book performs incredibly well in one market and does nothing in another market. And that will likely tell you that one publisher has done a good job and the other publisher has not done a good job since taste. There's obviously local taste around local issues, mm. history, politics, celebrities, personalities. But otherwise, taste is fairly similar across the world. So if in one market it's done very well and in another market not so well, the less well-published market, the publisher's done a, a rubbish job. And again, with this positioning is what you're talking about. Yeah. So what, what makes you really good at positioning then? Like what, what goes into the thinking about positioning? Well, part of it is having a sense when you read the manuscript of what you're going to do with the book. So there's an absolutely brilliant economist called John Kay, who we published a number of times and has also published with other publishers. And he's also self-published because he's been very successful. We persuaded him he would do better with us, and he did. But he has now published a book which is called Business and Society. What a killer title. And it's 170,000 words long. And I've been looking at it, and he's asked me... What, how we should publish it and this is what I've been doing for the last couple of days mm -hmm. and his original plan was to publish it in two separate books one about the history and it needs a much better title obviously <coughs> um, it needs a better title yeah my current thinking is maybe instead of business in society which is a, I mean, who cares yeah, yeah. But hate when the current possibility is hate the producer love the product but I'm not sure that'll work but anyway something different right. and so, so I so sorry 
thinking about the title is a big part of it. That's like that, that gets you going, it. right? Because yeah. that that gets we don't always. It doesn't have to be at the beginning. It's an important thing, but it, the title is important. But in this case, I've got to decide: Do I agree with him? Two volumes, or should we cut it and put it in one volume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then how much is it finance? How much is it business? How much is economics? And. Um, in its so, the subject matter, you mean? or in the, in, Exactly, in how we position it. So what do I mean by how we position it? It's what we put on the cover, <clears throat> the category that we have. And who you used to blurb it? Very good indeed. Who we used to blurb it, who we send out review copies to, what we tell the different papers that we send. You know, is this one for the FT? Is it one for the Guardian? Is it one for right. you know, the Today programme in the UK? All of these different things. So, so it really is where you think the core is. The core. The core market. Who are the people who are going to be the, most the, excited? Right. And then they will tell their friends. And this is right, exactly, word of mouth. So you yeah. get it to a point where the ball's rolling on its own. And the very best is then when so many people do it that you feel you're left out if you're not, you know, in your circle, everybody else. I mean, the most recent example of that is not books, but films. I mean, how extraordinary that everybody felt they had to go and see Barbie or Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, I walked out of Oppenheimer. It was quite slow and boring, wasn't it? Jesus. I couldn't see what all the fuss was about. So, you know, brilliant marketing strategy for an indifferent film. <coughs> also one that's so conformed to the classic American thing of the one heroic individual. Okay, so... But brilliant marketing, and, and so publishers set out to do that as well. So that's what you... That's how your, your mindset is, okay, I'm reading this manuscript, how do I position it? What, yeah, or, or what can I do? It's good. I admire it. I admire this thing very much. He yeah, did all this. Yeah. Some very serious faults, right. which we will iron out, because he's really he's a brilliant, brilliant man. How can I make this a success? Yeah. I, but that will be perhaps another way of saying how do I position it? What can I do to make this a success? Success. Yeah. Make it public. Make it exactly. Make it have a big public. There was a great literary agent, long dead now, called Giles Gordon, and if he did a really bad, if you did a really bad job with one of your his authors, he would write and say, that's not publishing, that's privishing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, though, if it's a great work, it doesn't, and maybe you did a, not such a great job, but the work is still there, and it's, it, it, if someone else finds it, you know, if, some, if a critic finds it, they can have a whole new life. It's it can not... do, but it doesn't happen very often, no. unfortunately, it okay. really doesn't. Okay. So a, we're an independent publisher, and there's the group in the UK called the Independent Alliance, and there's a very good... Yeah. <coughs> classics publisher called Pushkin and he very successfully relaunched a book called oh, I've forgotten the author's name called The Passenger okay. and he was a German uh, who fled Germany and wrote this extraordinary novel about a man just at the beginning of all the, the terrible Nazi atrocities right. who felt that he had to run away and he spent the whole novel on trains just running away shedding his money his watch, everything always just trying to run away. Get away from what what was happening? Well, his, his home has been attacked, a friend of his has been beaten up and possibly right. murdered. Okay. His wife is not, he is Jewish, I think, and his wife is That puts Jewish. me in mind of Walter Benjamin. Yes, exactly. Anyway, it's a terrific novel. It had never, it had been published before, and it has a very good backstory because he fled Germany, he wrote the novel, he went to Australia, and then decided to come back to participate in the war effort. And his boat, uh, towards the end of the war was torpedoed by the Germans and sunk. And the novel was so published... he died on the boat? He died on the boat, yeah, he didn't make it through the war. Uh, and the novel 
was published quietly and unsuccessfully, and then this publisher, this friend of mine, it's rediscovered it. I, I think that. retranslated it, and it became a big bestseller. And it's a really, it's a really good haunting novel. So it does happen. What's the name of the novel again? The Passenger. Oh yes, okay. Well, we published when we acquired this company, Souvenir Press, one of the very finest books. Also, a Second World War book um, is a very, very short novella called Address Unknown. Uh, by Catherine Cressman Taylor. She never called herself Catherine because she thought the book wouldn't be taken seriously. Um, and it's an epistolatory novel. It's only about 100 pages long, so it's really short because it's reproduced as letters. Um, and it's an exchange of letters between two very, very good friends who'd run an art gallery together in Germany, one of whom uh, was Jewish and goes to Los Angeles at the beginning of the Nazi era, and the other of whom is German. Sorry, and it becomes a Nazi as an Aryan. And he... He has an affair with <coughs> the Jewish one's sister, and she's a nightclub performer in Berlin, and the Nazis are after her, and so she flees Berlin to the estate of the man who's become a Nazi, and she's murdered on his estate. And he writes very coolly and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't do anything about this, what a shame. And so the, his previous friend and uh, co-gallery owner sends him a series of letters which will lead to his destruction. It's absolutely brilliant. It's very short. It's sort of perfectly formed. It has, in, maybe it's 80 pages, two murders. And it, it is currently in discussion for making a film. And it's always had a sort of underground following. But So when we took over the company, we relaunched it because uh, it had only been available in hardback. So we relaunched it in paperback. We changed its positioning. I sent it round to everybody. What did you think. do to change his position? We put it into a paperback. We gave it a completely new cover. We gave it a new introduction. That's not positioning. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't a hardback anymore. It was a paperback, okay. so it would be in different parts of bookshops. Bookshops would that's retake. Mater- that's the material book, though. That's, well, that's what we mean by positioning and publishing. Okay. I think. So we, I try really hard because I think it's a masterpiece, a really, yeah. really powerful book written by this unknown American journalist who wrote it as a warning about the horrors of tyranny. And um, it did something, but it didn't ever take off as I hoped it would. So that was a disappointment. You know, a really good book that has not, I believe, found the fame and level that it should. I just want to get in my love and admiration of Clive James. Yes, yeah, great writer, great man. uh, His cultural amnesia, you were talking about the Second World War, he's really harsh on uh, those who complied with the Nazis, uh, a lot of French intellectuals. Yeah, and, yeah but, but, but anyway, uh, about admiration. Just so slowly winding down here, if, you, if you're saying it's, in, it's not statistics, then you are saying it's instinct and experience, right? And judgment. And it's, it's and also, judgment. I mean, like most publishers, we have an acquisitions meeting yeah. where different people express different views and voices based on their own judgment and their own experience. Okay, and then they have to make their <coughs> their case, their argument? Well, the meeting they... is chaired by the publisher. Right. And we come to a conclusion. And part of that is commercial. Yes, we will participate in this auction, mm-hmm. but we will only go to £25,000. So if it goes for forty, we will yeah. lose it or yeah. whatever. Sometimes we win on an underbid, but okay. not always, obviously. So what you're looking so it's partly commercial, but it is judgment. Do I think this is really good and special? Yeah. And yeah. do I know how to make it a success? Okay. Do I have a, a vision for it? Yeah. Okay. Right. So what else do you do? 
Um, well, I, I mean, I set up this company and I ran it until July the 1st this year. So, and the company started with three people and now there's uh, 65. So, you know, there's been a lot of work in developing the company nationally and, and internationally and developing new strands to our publishing. But now I'm not running it and I have handed it over to uh, one of my colleagues to run who's been here for 16 years, Rebecca Gray, who's incredibly smart and talented. And well, How come it went from six to three to 65? Like how, what do you well, do? it grew. And we just I know it grew, but like you must have done something right. What well, we published some successful books. And I mean, to yeah, do I something know. right is to publish successful books. I know. <laughs> that is what it is. It's, yes, okay. I mean, on the one hand, it's incredibly simple and obvious, and on the other yes. hand, it's not so easy. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to get at. But it's, it, it, are you saying that it's, it's just not something you can describe. No, you know, when we started, the very first book we published was book one. Now we published, and we for a long time we published ten or twenty books a year. Now we publish a hundred books a year. <coughs> when we started, we only did non-fiction. There were a tiny number of exceptions. Mm -hmm. Then we bought Serpent's Tale, and we had a very good fiction, a literary fiction list. Yeah. Then we set up a crime list four years ago, Viper, okay. which has been staggeringly successful and won Imprint of the Year and we've had Author of the Year twice. So, so we've expanded but what it's we instinct, do. It's, it's, sorry to push this, but it's, it's instinct? You know, that's, it, partly it's an instinct, but it's partly also that they have a good network of people that they can rely on. So yeah. they, and you may not start with a network, you've got to develop it. I mentioned my admiration of for the London Review of Books, so I've got to know lots of London Review of Books editors and writers, and they're useful to me, literary agents. So people have networks who develop ideas and contacts that they feed to them and, and share books with them. And you have to read a ton of really good, like you, you want to read all the best stuff that's being written right now. Right, you want to make sure at least you get no, in I front know, of I need, you. Exactly, I not only want to read it; I want to publish it. You, yeah, best. yeah, exactly. It. But you, you need to get. You want a picture of all of the best stuff, so you get to look at it and possibly publish it. So you, you want no, to know all. Not the me best personally, stuff. but with our yes, our editors. Yes, I do. So yeah, where's the best stuff, and how do I find it, and how do I re get a hold of it? So agents, so agents, yeah. literary agents represent yeah. a lot of the best and, stuff. Very few publishers, indeed in the US, Canada, or UK, or elsewhere. Very few publishers now buy fiction if it doesn't come from a literary agent. agent. And yeah. on their websites, most publishers say, you need to have an agent before yes. you can submit fiction. Yes, understand. Not true with non-fiction. You can go out, you can find somebody interesting, as we did with Mary Beer. Yeah. Approach them, ask them to do a book. Okay. But they will, they will have it. I mean, every, every agent has tried to persuade Mary Beard to sign up with them she doesn't have any we are her agent we act on her behalf oh, we represent her yes so we have, great. We have very, that. yeah it's good <laughs> but it means we have a very close personal uh -huh. relationship we do a huge amount for her and she's and the agents are saying listen get away from those guys and we can exactly. make you a ton more money exactly okay which I don't think which I don't I genuinely don't believe is the case and who are we the best the agents who gives you the best stuff there's been a huge growth in agenting in the last few years but there are a core number of agents yeah. who are still the best in the UK. So the choice, like you get the choicest stuff from who? Um, RCW are one of the great agencies. David Hyam Associates, uh, Andrew Wiley, who you may have interviewed, and his yes. his sidekick Sarah Chalfant, and she has a very good, very good guy there called James Pullen. So 
but there's a whole series of others now as well. And, and, and they tend to specialise. So the crime agents, who I don't know because I've never personally acquired crime, mm. that are Viper Publishing Director works with, they're different altogether. So it's, it's really quite a lot. There's probably about 30 or 40 agents we work with regularly. Okay. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you spend your life doing this? I've enjoyed it very much. It's been very satisfying. Uh, I've liked seeing the company grow. I've liked publishing successful books. I enjoy the company of my colleagues very much who are completely brilliant, some of them really, and so that's been very stimulating and enjoyable. And I do think books matter. I do think when people read books, good books, it can change their view of the world. And I think if more people can read... One of the great, great changes in the 20th century was the explosive growth of literacy throughout the world mm -hmm. and that really did contribute has contributed massively to rising living standards obviously the two go together but it really has there's but there's still a huge inequality there's it's worse massive. than ever and well, it, there could be another massive world war they could yeah and i don't think publishers will be responsible it could but where the, where one of the mega inequalities which has gone which is really worth remembering is between men's education, women's education. Yeah. And that really has, not everywhere in the world, look at Afghanistan, you know, drifting back into the Stone Age and its treatment of women, but in most places, women's education has really improved. They read a whole lot more. Yeah. And as a result, their standard of living has gone up and the inequality between yeah. men and women is corrected. So I think, I think reading is an absolutely fundamental human activity and a human right and publishers and everybody who cares about books, it's really important we defend and fight for that. Beautiful. Thanks for taking the time to talk. Pleasure. Okay, so Andrew Franklin is the founder and publisher of Profile Books, which he launched in 1996. What are you doing now? Uh, I'm now called Founder Director, and I'm acquiring more books and working more with authors. I mean, I was doing that. I've never stopped doing that, but I'm obviously doing a great deal less management. And you're going to do this for the rest of your life then? Uh, Anything else you're going to do? Well, I do. There's other things that I greatly enjoy doing, which I do will do a bit more of. But um, like what? I enjoy my grandchildren very much. I, I'm quite an ambitious walker. We're walking to Santiago de Compostela this year. Uh, I enjoy. Your knees are holding out then for walking. Yeah, I've never been a runner. Okay. Well, yeah, they are. Yeah. So. Well, thanks. Uh, and reading for pleasure too, which is hard to find time for in publishing. Let me get you a copy of Address Unknown because it's so good.